Welcome to the First Year Experience Podcast. My name is Dr. Cesar Livar, and on this week's podcast, I have three guests. First guest, Sergio Saldivar. Our next guest is Dagoberto Ramirez, University College. And our final guest, Mariana Alessandri from um, Philosophy Department. Thank you all for joining me today. I've invited you all here because I'd, I'd like to talk about a flyer I saw at the end of the semester in the spring. And so I saw the flyer, and the flyer, immediately the word that drew me to the flyer was the word educación. There were questions about why we were pursuing education, if we're pursuing the same sort of education as our parents. And so immediately I thought about um, sort of the, the cultural value in that. I saw about sort of the conflict that that might arise. Enter Dr. Alessandri. Tell me about that talk, because I, I, I understand it was you who was giving that talk. I wasn't able to go, but I really wanted to go because I'm fascinated by the subject. Okay, so I had this idea for the talk. The talk was called Educated But Not Educado. And um, it started because I heard my students saying, um, I want to better myself. I came to college to better myself. And that word just struck me. And I was like, what do you mean better yourself? From what? Yeah. You're going to become a better person because you're going to be educated, because you're going to have a diploma that's going to make you a better person? What does that mean you were before? And more important to my concern, what does that mean about the people in your family who are not formally educated? Does it mean that you're going to be better than them? And that, you know, in talking to students about it, it really has like very deep implications. And I think that um, I wanted to address it. And when I was addressing it, the students like really had their eyes open, like, whoa, this really yeah. does. Like there is a potential conflict of interest between getting a formal education and being educado. So I, I, I asked them about you know, where do you get your education first? And they say, from my family, from my abuela, from my mom. And that is not necessarily formal, right? That's just in the home, that's in the mm -hmm. kitchen. And then you come to school and you learn all these other things. And you learn and you get an education. And sometimes what you learn in your education makes you think differently about your home. And I'm sort of still, I talk to all my students about it, and even this semester, edu education, formal education, um, tempts students sometimes to say things or think things like my family's ignorant because they didn't go to college. Mm -hmm. So I'm not ignorant anymore. And I say, okay, what do you mean by these words? You know, and it's like, well, um, I'm te teaching Latinx theologies. And so we're talking about um, curanderismo right now. And the curandera, right? So they, they, they've learned all this stuff as a child, but then they come in here and they learn Western medicine. And then they think back and they say, oh, that, oh, my mom just, she, she rubbed an egg on me and she thought she was going to heal me, right? And they're yeah. embarrassed of it and yeah. they're like, that's not real. Because now I learned, right? So I came to college and I learned that that's not real. Yeah. And now we have Western medicine so I can let go of all those superstitions. And it causes them, I think, conflict once we point it out to like, oh, well, you're turning on your family, right? So you're saying that the person who raised you, the educado, is kind of being jeopardized and being threatened by the education. It, you know, it's a fascinating conversation because Dr. Ramirez here and I and, and Cynthia, you know, we work with first-year students who are part of the first-year experience uh, program here at the university and the university college. And I know, and I'm sure Dr. Ramirez can speak to this as well, the first, the first conversation, right, about, about where, why are you here and I want to get educated, I want to better myself. I often see students write that as we go through like a goal-setting goal exercise and they'll say, I want to be a better person, or I want to be somebody. And I often ask, mm -hmm. what, does that, what does that mean? You're, you're not somebody already, right? And so 
un just unpacking that, I think, leads to a whole other set of conversations. But this idea, this, this, this question about the conflict or, or the, the conversation about conflict, I think is incredibly powerful and incredibly timely. A lot of the literature on student success, on college success, especially the early literature, tells us that students need to disengage from their family, that they, uh, they have to go through this transition. And it, it, you know, just in what you've said, it sounds like, yeah, the, the, this formal education can help expedite that process and certainly put poor students to question, right, about where they're coming from and what they've learned. Dr. Ramirez, I know you've used an article in, in, in your class that kind of maybe doesn't necessarily point that out, but, but it does engage in that conversation about what does that mean? What does it mean to be uh, ser educado, right? Yeah, one of our almost locally grown researchers, Laura Rendon from the Laredo, Texas area, who went on to become a professor, just recently retired up in San Antonio, uh, she wrote an article called uh, Una Persona Educada, right? And, and we got introduced to it. We had the opportunity to actually go see her and meet her, and we took pictures with her, which I uploaded to my FPT portfolio because I wanted to show evidence that I actually met Laura Rendon, right? And I showed it to my students as well. And I had longer hair, it was last year, about a year ago. So Laura Rendon talks about her pedagogy, her, her, her approach to teaching and learning at the university, and it's really radical. It really goes very much against this Western thought of the separation between the professor and the student. The professor is there to dispense knowledge and the student is there to receive it. And they're being prepared in a very technical fashion, mm -hmm. right? Leaving the human part out. So she developed this approach called a sentipensante approach to teaching and learning, which of course comes from the two root words of sentir, mm -hmm. to feel, to emote to relate, to connect, and pensar, right? The thinking, the knowledge part. And so she challenges the universities to take on that approach. And you can imagine what all of the people in those other boxes out there in classrooms here between 107 and uh, Sugar, and I think they renamed those other two after presidents, but I think it was 4th Street and, and Junior Street. Mm -hmm. You can imagine how uh, accepting they would be of this, which they probably would, would not be, is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Because she's saying that professors ought to get to know their students deeply and well and relate to them in order to then, the students would then be more likely to want to perform with, with everything academically that they would be challenged with. I mean, I come from a pre-K-12 system. I did 30 years in that system. And now this is my fourth year here. And in that system, I mean, we realize that you, before you can really get to a kid's mind, you gotta get to his heart, right? And so not everybody did that, but those that were very successful were the ones who, who did that. And that is exactly what the Sentipensanti approach to teaching and learning is. So we read the article and I asked the students, where do you experience this? And of course they mentioned home, that at home as they were growing up, they were very connected, and they were learning things along the way. But they say there's, the separation begins in elementary, middle, and high, and that here it really is completely, mm -hmm. you're there, we're here, is what a lot of professors seem to profess to them. And so it's a big challenge that Laura Landon throws at us, you know? Mm -hmm. Can we do this? Now, we do this in UNIV, we hope, because we, we are their advisors. Mm -hmm. And so we know we need to build relationships with them. But as we're building these relationships, I see that the students will do 
any task I ask him to do because we're now building this relationship together. We're feeling our way through it right, as, as emotional human beings and we're learning knowledge along the way to become better scholars. So, you, so you're convinced that because of this particular pedagogy, um, and, it, and it sounds like you, know, you said you've got 30 years of, of public school experience, so you know, you've come to maybe Laura Landon a little later in your life, in your education, in your teaching life, but it sounds like you are already doing this. And so doing this, by taking on this approach, uh, you, there's more buy-in from your students. Absolutely. I need to qualify what I said because at age 20-something uh, in 1982 when I started teaching in that system, I, I was totally a just uh, pensante type of, a, you know, you're over there and I'm over here. And so I started slowly learning this along the way. I think by the mid-90s uh, at La Jolla ISD where I was a teacher, and we got lots of training on connecting to kids. And so I saw the buy-in. Plus, also my getting married and my wife is raising me. She's a counselor, so she taught me a lot about <laughs> you gotta connect to the kids. Yeah. Right. And so yeah, it's been a journey, right? Yeah. And certainly. so by the time I got here, I realized this is what's gonna work. So when I went through the interview and they said, uh, "Do you realize you're gonna be advising students?" I said, "I I welcome that. Yeah. I can't wait for that. Right. Which is radical now, right? Because not everybody in in, uh, in, in box inside these four streets is actually doing uh, advising with kids yeah and I don't get that I don't see how a professor cannot uh, want to get to know their students to some degree or other yeah. I recognize some classes are very large and it's very hard to do that but it should be a welcoming uh, opportunity not one uh, that is viewed as a, a hassle or a problem or an issue no thank you now, dr. Alessandro you in addition to, to maybe getting students to think about this, right, and to, to, to think about where they're coming from and, and the education they receive at home versus the very formal education maybe of the institution, what, what else do you hope for? By having the students engage in this conversation, what do you want them to, to take away or...? I want them to recognize intelligence in unexpected places. And I want them to find it. And it goes back to Dagoberto, I feel like what you're talking about is care. Yes. And I think that that word care is looked down upon, I think, a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like, why should we care about our students? We care about their test scores, we care about the outcomes, but like, care about them? That's crossing the line. But I think you can't do it unless you care about them, who they are. And so, finding the intelligence inside their house. So I say things like, a college degree is not going to make you smarter than your mom. Mm -hmm. Even if she doesn't have a college degree, you are going to have different skills. Maybe you'll be able to get a so-called better job, mm -hmm. a higher paying job maybe, but it's not going to make you a better person than her, and it's not going to make you smarter. She has different kind of smarts. And so um, in the class I'm teaching now, the Latinx theology, we're, we're, we have this phrase, and it's really picking up speed, which is cool, um, philosophy of the kitchen. Because Sor Juana de la Cruz, 17th century nun, um, said this one line that I am obsessed with. She said, if Aristotle had cooked, he would have written more. <laughs> so it's this beautiful testament to the way that you can learn anywhere. That learning is not something that you have to do in the classroom, yeah. and that you can learn a lot from the kitchen. And my students are reporting that some of their best, most intellectual, most philosophical conversations have been in the kitchen with their mom, their abuela. 
and that is so cool. I want them to look past just the classroom and the books and who gets published because we know throughout the centuries that has been sexist, right? That has been the, the privileged few get published. The privileged few get seen as intellectuals, whether we're talking about theology or philosophy or any of the academic subjects, but what we don't always see are the abuelas and their wisdom and all the things we can actually learn from them. So that's what I want my students. I want them to go beyond the classroom and have conversations with their parents about mm -hmm. you know their lives and about what they've learned and learn from them and not just think that learning is relegated to the classroom. It's interesting, I want to jump in on the kitchen thing that Mariana just mentioned, but uh, some of the most stimulating talks besides with the people present here in this room recently uh, have been in the kitchen at my house with my 22-year-old son, who just graduated from here with a computer science degree, and he's just starting to look for a job, and that's okay. So we stand around the kitchen, uh, I'm usually sitting uh, doing something, and my wife and him are standing, and but we have this really comfortable, this is what it is, discussions about what's going on around the world. Uh, my son, is because of his computer science background, is really connected to podcasts, He's always listening to podcasts and he's always reading stuff. So that is a very comfortable space, right? So that if every classroom could feel like a kitchen, it'd be amazing, right? Yeah, I mean, it really changes the dynamics of who's in charge, who knows the most, because usually it's the abuela or the mother who said, no, you've got to get out of here, right? So oftentimes men are, are asked to leave. And it's the opposite of what we have in the academy, right? In, yes. the, in the classroom, it's like you know, the male scholar or the white male scholar, traditionally, however it is, is the one that we think is the neutral voice, like the, the authoritative voice who has mm -hmm. the truth. Mm -hmm. Well, in the kitchen, that voice doesn't, doesn't that voice is a bumbling voice, right? Yeah. And the, 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 the better voice or the more authoritative voice is the voice who knows more through experience and through action and all that. In many ways, it feels like we're working against something. I think, I think we can all agree that Taking this approach, even engaging our students in this conversation, reminding them that there is value in what they're bringing from home, right, and those lessons that are learned, reminding them that that's, that's important, that's powerful, that's valuable, um, is good and is wonderful. Um, it's certainly something that I, I know I try and adhere to, and it's still in my classes and my students, but it, it almost feels like, you know, we're working sort of against this wave, right? We're working against history, against the, the institution. Um, do you find, and, and any, anyone can jump in, do you, are you do you deliberately try to, to, to encourage other faculty to take this approach or to engage other faculty in these conversations? Because I, I think it's important that we engage our students, certainly, but the other people that are in the classroom with students that have the power to, to influence and impact students' lives or other faculty. Do you engage other faculty in these conversations? I want to go back to the history thing. Okay. Um, because I think it's really important to recognize the history of what education means for brown bodies. Mm -hmm. So I'm going all the way back to 1550. In Latin America, there's this great debate between um, Las Casas and Sepúlveda. Mm -hmm. And in this debate, they both the debate was over whether the natives or the barbarians, as they called them, could be taught. Can they be civilized? Mm -hmm. And Las Casas said, yes, they can be taught, so let's be gentle with them and teach them and civilize them and bring them up to our standards. Sepúlveda said, no, let's just use them for their labor as slaves. So Las Casas won out, but so was born education. Mm -hmm. So for brown bodies, education is particularly um, 
historical and relevant and it's it's the equivalent of civilization and even one of my students used that word I want to be more civilized and I'm like oh, what do you mean yeah what does that mean do you recognize the connotation the historical connotation of what you're saying yeah because that means that you're coming out of a barbarian state you're going into a civilized state and education is going to help you do and that again just brings back these kind of issues um, as in, in terms of your other question yes I, I'm trying to sort of reach faculty and students by just doing, offering these kind of public lectures through the Center for Teaching Excellence and through the Philosophy Club. Just having forums where we can actually talk about it. So I did one on grammar that I'm going to repeat and just talk about the ways in which when we talk about students' grammar, we often don't recognize that it's a pretty familiar trope to use grammar against black and brown bodies. Um, so just kind of outlining the history of it, I would like to start a book group with the CTE to, to talk about these kind of alternative texts that mm -hmm. like Santi Pensante and like Angela Venezuela's um, subtractive schooling. Like, what is it to be in our context here with 90% Hispanic students? is very yeah. different from teaching in Arkansas or Michigan or anywhere else. Like, this is an important context for us to recognize who our students are, how to get into the kitchen, right? That's my goal, is to get mm -hmm. into their kitchen. So how do I do that? I have to care. I have to. It sounds like a great journal article uh, title too. Like how to getting yeah, into the kitchen or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. La cocina. Yeah. Well, I'll answer the question in several ways. One is within UNIV, right? The twelve or thirteen of us have heard about La Renda for two or three years now, and I think the the people using it to one degree or other is growing. It's also growing, the, what we're doing is growing across the university slowly. I mean, I presented through CTE, uh, we're MOS affiliates, so they hear what we're doing, we try to impact there. The, the greater thing we're doing is we're going outside, unfortunately, we have to go outside the institutions sometimes, and we presented at international conferences at the island, we did, and we've done other, other conferences, and we're already accepted to present at other ones to share the work we've done. The, 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 the linchpin to all this for what we're doing uh, with Lara Rendon's work, I think, is the Spanish language. Las, que, que hablamos del idioma español, mm -hmm. right? I am constantly now um, translanguaging in my classroom. I feel real comfortable. It's almost like coming from a system that shunned your culture and your language, right, for 30 years, where mm -hmm. I told students to leave their language and their culture outside the door. Yeah. And when they were walking down the hallway, I remember shooing them into classes. You know, hurry up, get inside, get inside. No Spanish, get inside, right? And so coming here is almost like a, a freeing, right? The, like a, a, my own liberal education, right? Liberating me, coming from the word freedom, mm -hmm. to grow, right? The human nature, nurturing that, that spirit. And so, the, the ability at this university, like 90%, like Mariana talks about, Hispanic, you know, how can we not, you know, go there yeah. with Spanish? At, to, to some degree where the students are, that are comfortable with it, to experience it. I, I have to be careful with that too. I don't want anyone in my classroom who doesn't know Spanish to feel like, well, what, what's he doing here? So I try to explain that. Mm -hmm. to them. I said, I hope you all are comfortable. So I translanguage. I don't do only Spanish. I don't do only English anymore. Mm -hmm. And so now go ahead. This is our second uh, week of the semester. I've met my students three times. And I feel that I'm, I'm already connecting to them. And mm -hmm. part of it is 
that I'm showing them that I value both languages. And they're coming up to me and asking me questions in Spanish about advising, about the assignment. And I answer, you know, I don't tell them to speak to me in English. Yeah. So, so part of it is trying to connect to them as humans. I want to humanize the experience. And I want to use language as, uh, to show them. And, and many of them are shocked, I believe, because they come from a system that for, they've been in for at least 12 years, maybe even for 14 years, because they went through pre-K and K. Mm. And so they, they're coming to this new system, and it would be wonderful if the work that B3 Institute is doing uh, would continue to, to spread, and that we'd have more bilingual classes. Like I know that this semester you're offering a bilingual class. Last semester I offered it. I'm doing I, one too this semester. You're doing one in, in philosophy? Muy bien, muy bien. I mean, it's, and, and I do the same as you. I think it's really important for the teacher to explain, yeah. like, this is not to make anyone feel left out. Mm -hmm. Anyone who doesn't speak Spanish, it's okay. We're all going to translate. Like, mm -hmm. it's for everyone. It's not mm -hmm. just for people who, I mean, I'm teaching Latinx theology, and they're like, do we have to be Latinx? And I'm like, no, you don't mm -hmm. have to. Be. <laughs> you don't have to be a Greek philosopher when I teach you Greek philosophy. That's yeah. the point. Yeah. It's that you're learning something new, and don't assume you already know it either, right? Yeah. Um, but to put your comment about Spanish in the historical context, it's important to remember that, like, civilization meant your barbarian language is wrong. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to take it away and give you a new one. Your barbarian religion is wrong. So I'm going to take it away and give you a new one. Your knowledge is wrong. Your clothing is wrong. That's, that's why it's so heinous to have this kind of English-only mentality. Mm -hmm. It's because it's the same process that's been happening since 1550, right? You're a barbarian, and we're going to teach you the right way to do things. And that's going to be, you know, all English. Jose and I this summer had an opportunity to teach a Intro to Bilingual Education. Uh, he taught one section, I taught another to eight students that just graduated from PSJA with an associate's degree, and in a year and a half they're going to be back in the classroom teaching elementary kids. So they're in a really like sped up uh, thing. So, so we were their first professors. The first activity I did is I said, we're going to take a trip. So we, we left the education building and we came to look at the Escandon statue, right? And they didn't know where we were, I was taking them. It was a hot, it was hot because my class was the last one. It was, it was 10.50 when I brought yeah. them in. The summer was very hot by 11 o'clock. So we came, we stood there, and I said, I want you to look at this statue. I want you to look at the information on there. So they looked at the cities that are listed there, the years, the dates. I said, this is the guy that you can thank or blame for the Spanish language <laughs> getting fixed here. He wasn't the first Spanish speaker to come to the area, but he brought the first families that se estableceron aquí. And then I said, I wonder how the people who were here felt about that, and we even thought about that. I wanted them to get a sense of this bilingual education, which could have been trilingual, is the Carancawa, the Coahuitecans, and the other, the Lipans, and all the other uh, groups that were here, if their languages had not been obliterated pretty much. Yes. So yes. I, I brought them to that. It was a really good experience. I haven't found a way to do it this semester yet. Yeah. With UNIV, I think I'm gonna wait for the weather to calm down a bit. <laughs> Not yeah. 105 degrees. Yeah. And, uh, I'll figure a way to. I want them to think of that. The families that were here. I mean, they were not. These people were not invited here. They were conquistadores. They were invaders. You know. Yeah. I think I have finally managed to convince Dr. David Bowles to give a mm. talk, a public lecture on the native peoples of the Rio Grande Valley. 
Awesome. And he's also going to teach Nahuatl at this yes. university. He is a scholar of Nahuatl. Yeah, right? he is. Yes. Yeah. So it's not just Spanish, right? Yeah. It's not just honoring Spanish in the classroom. We're yes. going all the way. Yes. Like it wasn't yes. just English and Spanish. Yeah. So Francisco will have to call his institute the trilingual instead of bilingual. Multilingual. Multilingual is probably more appropriate. Um, what do we want? What do we want our students to know? We taken away listening to this podcast, listening to faculty members here, and clearly, I I think for me immediately it it sounds like wow, they get it. Maybe they care about me. They care about where I'm coming from. What do you want your students to know? I think if I have to answer that, I mean, based on the talk that I gave last year, the point I was trying to push home, besides what we already talked about, was that there are certain skills that you're going to have to learn. And these are what Gloria Anzaldúa calls las reglas de academia. Las reglas, like you have to learn where to put your commas, you have to learn how to speak um, in a way that people consider to be intelligent. So I want to say, I want them to have two minds. One mind that says, I am already better, I'm already educated, I'm already good, um, so I don't need to, my moral self can be helped by using college, but it won't necessarily, like getting um, a 4.0 doesn't necessarily make me a better moral person, hmm. but it can if you take the right kinds of classes. Um, but on the other hand, there are things that you're going to need to know to be able to get a job and to be successful at a job. So I don't know how to call it, you know, besides the reglas, like, just recognize that people will base your intelligence on how you speak and how you sound, and that's not fair, but it's also true. And so what you have to do is not internalize that. You have to not buy into it, that how someone speaks is a measure of how intelligent they are, because it's not true. Mm -hmm. So there, it, we, I want my students to always be of two minds. There's the actual, like, um, educación, being a good person, being a moral person, not cheating, right? You can be a 4.0 and have cheated your whole way through. Mm -hmm. And that's not fair, right? It doesn't make you better. But people are going to think, wow, that person's so smart, they're a doctor. They're going to buy it. They don't care if you're a good person. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't show on your diploma if you got there fairly or not. But the other part, the part that I'm more concerned as, you know, as a philosophy professor, is like what's on the inside? Like, who are you inside? What mm -hmm. kind of things can we help you? How can you grow and how can you listen and how can you find the kitchen and how can you value all those things yeah. that to me are just way more important. And I think they don't have to be in conflict, which is why it's not necessarily that if you go to college, you're going to hate your parents. I mean, of course not. But know that that tension is there and it's going to tempt you to think that, you know, all your traditions are superstitious and silly and we have to modernize and get into this world or something. I think that there's a way to value both of them. Or that, that either one can keep you from something. Maybe. Right? Um, um, so that, you know, again, going back to some of the, the literature in, in college success, um, that, that, that the parents, right, that relationship with our parents, the relationship with our family can somehow be a hindrance, can somehow weigh us down, right, a burden almost. And, and it's, it's a struggle. It, it is, you know, we have conversations about this in my class, but I think, I, I think what you say is, is very instrumental and, and, and important, right? That 
that it, it doesn't have to be, right? If we allow it to, if we allow the literature, if we allow sort of that larger, uh, what dictates, right, the institution, if we allow that to, to, to lead us and to guide us, then, then it might lead us down the road where we do, where we see our families negatively. Um, I know we were at, at this one of the conferences last year where a faculty member here um, said that, you know, criticized the, the Mexican culture, Latino culture. And, and I know I certainly took offense to it. I think my colleagues took offense to it. But it, again, putting, positioning them against each other. And I think what you've said is it doesn't have to be that way. And she was a Mexican too. Yes. And that's, that's the product of education. That's the product of yes. civilization, right? That's yeah. exactly what they wanted the Indians to feel about themselves, yeah. which is I'm wrong. I'm, I have to get civilized and then I'll be right. Yeah. So it means turning your back on your whole family. So it's not surprising that that happened or people who come from you know, Spanish language descent saying there should be no Spanish. It's just, for me, like a, an impoverished way to look at the world as though there's only room for one. Yeah. And so I think I like the title of this book, The Senti Pensante, mm -hmm. right? That it doesn't, we don't have to choose. We can have both and we can make them work together. We can teach students skills of writing and all the things that I consider to be not as important, although valued monetarily by this world, which philosophers have always criticized the world, right? It's, it's nothing new to say that the world is messed up. It's not we who are, you know, it's not my students who are messed up, it's the world. So we have to play the game a little bit yeah. to, to make it in this world. But don't let it get inside of you. Don't be convinced of something that's just not true. Yeah, and like, like Mariana, I too want my students uh, to know who they are, right? And so I stand in front of my students the very first day, and I, the first thing on my mouth is, so who are you? How did you get here? On whose shoulders did you stand? And where do you think you're going, right? The part of where do you think you're going is what I want to help them figure that out, and uh, help them help themselves figure that out. Uh, UNIB, as you, as you know, we, they're first-year students primarily, first-year experience, uh, transfer students. They're, they've declared a major recently. And so we talk about these decisions about navigating the system. I think that's important. But on the other side, I want them to explore how they got here, because it was not a trip that was very linear. Mm -hmm. And many of the students we get, right, are probably, um, have had people stand in the way, roadblocks, and said, you can't make it, you shouldn't even think about it. So I tell them, you, you made it, you're here, now let's figure out how do you help yourself navigate this brand new system that's not going to take you by the hand like you were taken from pre-K-12 and told where to go exactly at what time and what to do. Here, you, you have to learn to navigate it. There's a, there's a little wealth of knowledge that you, that's very uh, pristine and, and, and very exclusive, and we need to help you learn how to access that knowledge of where to go to get your services that you deserve as a student here. And so the, the other thing I want the students to walk away with in the end is a feeling of uh, understanding that some of the qualities that William Cronin talks about in his article about Only Connect, about a liberal education. Um, he talks about, he criticizes the system of how we make them go through courses and all in the, you know, in the, in the, the very ancient uh, university style of the, the quadrivium and the trivium of certain courses, right? And he says that we really haven't ventured off away from that. But he said, I would rather not worry about a list of courses they take. I mean, yes, they're going to take courses. But in the end, can they have they access these 10 qualities? And some of them are like they can talk to anybody. They read and they understand. They write, 
clearly, persuasively, and movingly. And I love to talk to my students about writing movingly. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? That's why I tell them, when you move me, I'm reading it and go, wow, I physically move, I said, you know? Yeah. Like, why? Well, I agree with you or I disagree with you, right? Yeah. To write movingly. And I've never seen it quite written <laughs> like that before. So I, I want my students to learn some of those 10 qualities of a liberally educated person, mm -hmm. according to Cronin. And so I, I want them to walk away with having navigated the system, ready to start a career that they feel passionate about. And then I, I also want them to leave the institution having further developed some, if not all of those 10 qualities. We're in the middle of that article this week with my students. Nice. This is really interesting. Because some of them are now questioning, like, why do we have to take certain courses? Mm -hmm. I said, well, what are you going to do about that? Mm -hmm. So we have, we just started to talk about that. Where they're beginning to even think, I can question the system? Of course you can. And but it, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> it's a great way to think about it. Like, some courses are there for your education, and some courses are there for your education. Right? So there are some courses which may not help you get your career, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. You should take them. Because they're going to help you with what's on the inside. They're going to help you know who you are and know what you love. And I heard this quote that's so beautiful about these so-called like liberal arts that are, you know, people say are useless or whatever. But we talk about things that we should, everyone should be trying to make the world more beautiful than it needs to be. Hmm. And I really like that that's, because that it's just quote. wonderful art. Art is not necessary. It just makes the world more beautiful than it needs to be. And that's our function. We are creators. We are beautiful makers. We're not just workers. We're not just wage earners. Yeah. We're also capable of deep self-reflection, beautiful art, music, all these things that maybe the advisors will say, well, that's not in your degree plan. I say ignore them. <laughs> right? Take the classes that are good don't for your soul. Don't let mom dad hear you, but... <laughs> So we have a healthy discussion about this well-rounded education term that has been coined and tossed around. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if we're, for the next two weeks we will delve into, I'll do different activities with them. And then at the end, I keep, you know, we read five articles. At the end, we try to connect them all. You know, the Cindy Pensanti article, the Cronin article, the article on research that you know, came out of the, uh, this area being one of the lowest um, college-going areas in the country. And so we, we talk about all those. We try to connect them all. So, yeah. You all have any final final thoughts for our listeners? Final? I, I, I wouldn't... I or wouldn't clo wanna... closing. Closing? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Parting shots. Parting shots, right. I mean, because we haven't... I think we've... Yeah. We talked a little bit about about how we, how we spread that, right? How we yeah. spread that love and that, that realization and respect for where we come from and, and the, the knowledges that we bring from the home, including language, culture, and those practices. But are, are there, is there anything you'd like faculty to know? Well, I will say this about education, and then I'll, I'll, I might address that one too about faculty, what I want them to know. But I tell my students that I am in this scholarly journey with them. So I want to be a better scholar. And so if we're talking about educación, quiero que ellos también me eduquen a mí. And so I want to learn from them, from what they bring from the home too. And so again, this is a, a journey I'm on. I haven't always been on this target that I'm now on. 
And so I'm more open to what can I learn from them today? Because that's what I challenge them. Can you walk out of this room today with something new, a new perspective, a piece of knowledge, something? So, ellos me están educando a mí también. At age 60, so it's pretty cool. It, it's a chance for me to be new again, like I said. Yeah, that's cool. Well, I think it shows them also it's, it's a never ending process, right? Yeah. Even when you have the degrees, you're still learning. So, what would I want faculty to know is. Um, I'd like them to consider being open to, to new perspectives, new approaches, um, to know that we're here. If they want to have further conversations, like this started because you saw a, a poster that she had put up, and then we've met her since then, and we know this is someone we want to talk about, talk with, I mean, and so we would hope others hear this, and we'll say, I'd like to have a conversation with them, or invite us into their classrooms, or co-present, maybe, and we're not the only ones doing this, right? Mm -hmm. There's probably some people out there that when they, when they hear this will say, hey, I want to meet up with them too. So I hope they're open to it. So, because I started with this idea of bettering myself, what I want my students to know is that you're not necessarily going to better yourself by getting a high-paying job. You might better your financial situation or something like that. But the self, I want students to take the self quite seriously in that like bettering yourself will come with other from other places, like reflection and you know, deep looking inside at your values, really getting to know yourself, critical thinking, like the things that um, may seem not as important, I think are actually more important. So I want students to know that bettering yourself is not just a matter of getting a degree. You can get a degree and not be better than you were before. And people without degrees might be better um, because they are more educado. What I want faculty to know, the most important thing that I want faculty to know is that we are dealing with a very unique student body here. That we're not in the middle of nowhere. We're not in the middle of anywhere. We are here and our students are very specific, like I don't know what other school has a 90% um, Hispanic student body, and mm -hmm. I think that demands different things. I think it means that you can't walk into your classroom, you ought not walk into your classroom and teach the same way that you would teach in any other university. I think you have to take the students into consideration, I think you have to take the history into consideration, um, and the biases that we've had since this whole, since 1550, and what we have meant by civilization and the way that we have been brought up in the institution to recognize certain things as more intelligent than other things. I think that all needs to be questioned and you can only question it if you're open to the idea that our students present us with this amazing opportunity to look at history and to see things differently than we have, were educated than, than we saw in our other classrooms when we were grad students teaching somewhere else. We're not dealing with the same students and instead of thinking that as maybe a negative thing, thinking of that as absolutely the best thing that we could have. I would not want to teach any other students in the world but our students. And that's what I would love. I would love for this type of thing to be in all of the, the new faculty, whatever we call them, the new faculty retreat or the new faculty um, meetings because I want new faculty to see that we have such a wonderful opportunity to do such a wonderful service for our students rather than just continuing on the civilization model that we had before. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Well, thank you all for coming.
With that, this, this concludes another episode of the First Year Experience podcast. Tune in next time for, for our next episode. Thank you for joining us. Goodbye. <laughs>